just for us. You know, in the church, we tend to get in rather than also looking out. And so we were ambitious to, to keep moving out. And we thought a big part of that would be planting other churches, right? Putting a, another church maybe down in the valley, other places. And we've tried some of those things. If you've been around, you've seen some of those. And, and they haven't really worked. And so, um, and that's okay. I mean, God is in control. So I just wanted to let you know one of the things that we're doing that's kind of new. Um, and it's a podcast called Kingdom Over Castle. And this podcast it came about with the idea, okay, if we're not going to plant right now, how can we see more people saved and more people growing? It's like, well, what if we can help activate the existing believers to, to live out their faith? <clears throat> so the goal here is there are a bunch of God-centered churches around. What if we could help them even grow, right? We, we don't want just our church to grow, which we do. We want people to be saved. We want all the churches that love Jesus to grow. Um, so there's, so far, there's, I think, six or seven episodes uploaded. Um, so check it out and share it. It's interviews uh, with other pastors from other churches about their church, because we want their churches to grow. It's interviews with other service organizations of how Christians can get involved making a difference in our community. Um, and those interviews are going to keep coming. So Check that out and share it. If that spreads among the believers in our area, hopefully it will help activate some of us normal people, like all of us, um, to actually get out and share our faith, to get involved with the community, and who knows what God might do through that. Um, so that's something we are focusing on this year. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, <clears throat> I thank you so much that you said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. You took responsibility for, for growing People. You, you took responsibility for saving people, and our job is simply to love you, to worship you, to know you, and to follow you. And so, God, I, I thank you for the freedom and the peace that that brings, um, that we aren't to go create good works necessarily, but we're to walk in the good works you've already prepared for us. So we thank you for your, your love. We thank you for your guidance. We do ask that you would grow us um, this year, little by little or a lot by a lot, however you desire, God, that we would have our hearts open to whatever is next for us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> you know, as a parent, um, I have four kids. I like God's design on most things, but there's one thing I think if God and I could talk about, I would change, um, and it would be free will among my children, right? I mean, I think most parents would agree. Yeah, I think maybe, okay, maybe not free will. I would, I would take away the ability for them to be deceived, Right? I, I, would, I would make it, force it so that they could see truth, believe truth, and then act on truth. Um, the problem with that is that's not the way God chose to do it. Uh, we watched a, a movie over the break, or a couple of us, called Bruce Almighty. I don't know if you've seen it. Maybe it's good, maybe it's not. But this guy gets mad at God, and he's like, I can do a better job than you. And God, Morgan Freeman, um, he, he's a good God. <laughs> he's like, all right, then you do it. And he gives Bruce the ability, the power to be God for a little while. Um, and of course, through the process, he's like, all right, but there's only one rule. You can't mess with free will. He's like, fine, whatever. But then there's his, his girl that he wants to love him. And he goes to God, finally, Morgan Freeman. He's like, how can I make her love me without taking away free will? And, and God's like, well, if you figure that one out, let me know. I'm like, that's actually a pretty good line, <laughs> right? I mean, what's the issue? God created us to love him to be in a relationship with him, but he wants it to be real, so he gave us the freedom. So he's not going to force anybody to love him, but yet that's the greatest goal, that's the greatest reason we exist, but we have the freedom to make it real. But here's the thing. God is a good God, and he is a good father, and he has given us every reason to believe. 
He has given us every advantage we, we need to know he is God. Jesus is who we claim to be, and salvation is in him alone. And so there are no excuses. You know, and you'll see this is the title of the sermon today in 1 John, No Second Chances. You know, we wish, we hope, oh, there's second chances. God knows that person's heart. After they die, they're going to get a chance. The Bible's pretty clear on that. There really aren't second chances because God has given everybody everything they need to believe. So turn to 1 John. I should have looked up the page number. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you. Grab that. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 5. And we've taken a a little bit of time off of 1 John because we had Christmas. Uh, We have two weeks left. That's it. Then we're going to go to Philippians, and that's going to be awesome. But here in 1 John, uh, you know, we see one of the great reasons that John writes this letter is so that people will believe and have confidence. He says that over and over. I write that you may know that you're saved. I write that you could have confidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And so here he's going to kind of continue that. But this, these verses in, in 1 John 5 are kind of weird. We're going to read them. You're going to go, what? Uh, But then we'll break them down and understand them. It's kind of a neat way where John is giving us more assurance, more proof that what we believe about Jesus is true. And so it begins actually in 1 John 5, verse 5. This one verse, we covered this last time in 1 John, but it sets the context for what we're going to read. So 1 John 5, 5 says, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So if you, if you missed that sermon, go listen to it. But how can we have victory in this life believing in Jesus as the Son of God? And there's a lot wrapped in, right? There's a lot of people say they believe, right? I believe in Jesus. But here, John is really taking pains to say you have to believe rightly about Jesus. Specifically, he is the Son of God. There were those moving through their church at the time saying Jesus isn't divine. He was a man, but he was not God. There's other movements that have gone, oh, he was God, but he was not fully man. He just looked like it. Here, he's making very clear, Jesus is the Son of God. So that's the claim that he's going to move on to. And we, again, the last sermon, we went through that, really looking at Jesus is the Son of God and the Christ, the Messiah. He, he is fully God, he's fully man, and he really did die on the cross. And he really did rise from the dead, and that's what gives us life, eternal life. And so now he's going to move on with some proof, right? How do we know this is true? All these religions out there claim to have truth, right? They claim to know what's true. Well, actually, some don't. Some, you can't know truth, so do whatever. But those that claim truth here, John is trying to give us evidence. You can know it's true. How do we know this is true? Look at verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If I receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Can I be honest? In my life of, of devotional reading and spending time in the, this is one of those passages that I just read and then move on. When you preach through a book, you're not allowed to do that. And so this was really neat for me, actually, to read this and study it and dig in. And there's, it's significant. This is different than a lot of things you find in Scripture. It's very meaty. But he's making a claim here. And here he's, he's saying, 
what we believe about Jesus is true because God says so. I mean, that's kind of the big theme here. God has testified that Jesus is his son. You see that uh, in verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Right? So the testimony of men, the, the apostles, the disciples, they were going around saying, this is true, this is true. I'm right now telling you, this is true. Well, that's a testimony of a person, good. Testimony of God is greater. And here he says that there are three witnesses, three testimonies to Jesus' identity as the Son of God and Messiah. The three witnesses declaring Jesus as the Son of God are water, blood, and spirit. Anybody confused? It's kind of, right? Water, blood, and spirit. So digging in, lots of commentators, you know, looking in, in the history. It's pretty clear when you dig in what John is talking about. And it's actually kind of fun when it, when it comes to light. The first evidence, one, water, right? Jesus was born. Uh, he was born to Mary, fully human, right? But it was the virgin birth, fully divine. Jesus lived as a kind of a normal guy, except he was perfect, um, up until about the age of 30, right? His stepdad was Joseph. He was a builder. And so he did that in, in life until 30 when it was time for him to begin his ministry. And it's kind of neat. As you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus before that time repeatedly say things like, it's not my time yet. It's not my time yet. You know, and he's talking about the time to go to the cross, the time to, it's not my time yet. Well, Mary, his mother, at one point at a feast, and they run out of wine. Maybe you know the story. You want Jesus at your wedding, by the way. Um, she says, they've run out of wine. You should do something about it. And he says, woman, which was a term of endearment, the way he said it. Woman, it's not my time yet, right? It's not time. But then it was time. And when it was time for him to enter his public ministry, he went to John the Baptist, who was his cousin, and was baptized. That's what the water is talking about. His baptism in the Jordan where he was dunked under the water and brought up. So, again, there's three witnesses. The first one is his baptism, water. Look on the screen and you'll see this passage from Matthew 3, 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So the, the evidence here, the testimony, is God himself. It is the water, but we saw in verse 9, right? God's testimony is greater than man's. God spoke from heaven. When Jesus was baptized... Right? Again, this was John the Baptist. John was, was a popular preacher, uh, and he was preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which you would think that wouldn't be a new message, but the, the people of Israel were getting very religious, doing the things, and he's like, hey, God doesn't care so much about your religious duties. He cares about your heart. Repent of your sin. Turn to him, and there's somebody coming who's greater than me, the Messiah, which was Jesus. And so when Jesus came to get baptized, of course, John the Baptist is a sinner, Jesus is not. He's like, whoa, <laughs> right? I, I can't even untie your sandals. I, you know, you should baptize me. Jesus says, let's do this. He says, okay, I'll, I'll consent. When he's baptized, a, a, a dove comes, so the, the spirit descending on him that people could see, and then a voice from heaven that people heard. Remember, John was popular. There was probably a crowd there, and the voice said, this is my son. So what is this water talking about? Jesus' baptism, God speaking this happened. He is my son, speaking to his identity. And when this was written, 
people could go check, right? Uh, there's a lot of extra biblical evidence, people writing about what happened around that time. Nobody wrote, this stuff is false. When this was written, people heard that and went, ooh, really? And they could check it. They could go ask people. At Jesus' baptism, God spoke aloud and sent the Spirit to anoint Jesus, attesting to his identity as the Son of God. Again, this was no secret. Look at other religions, right? Look at their evidence, where they began. A lot of them began in secret, right? Ooh, I received uh, these golden tablets that an angel showed me. I'm the only one that ever saw them, and I wrote them down. Secret. God didn't work that way. He didn't work in secret. He worked boldly proclaiming. Everybody could see. Everybody could hear. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, no one caught this on their smartphone to spread it, but word spread. Now, let's move to the second. The second testimony, the second evidence is the blood, right? Jesus began his ministry with baptism. He finished it on the cross when he died. You see in Hebrews and and throughout the Old Testament, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The blood is Jesus' blood on the cross when he died. But how? Well, God made a public statement at Jesus' death. He made it clear. Uh, If you're familiar with the story, remember Jesus uh, was arrested by the Jewish leaders. He went through this mock trial where they threw false witnesses at him, uh, trying to create something. Jesus is is finally then turned over to the Romans, right? We condemn him to death, but the Jews said, we can't kill anybody. So then the Romans take him. They say, fine, to, to prevent this uproar, to prevent a riot, we will kill this guy for you. So Jesus is turned over to the Romans, and they were going to crucify him. This was a normal way to kill somebody, to kill a criminal. When Jesus was killed, there was two with him, right? So this was, this was normal. This wasn't new. Uh, he was beaten, cat of nine tails. Maybe you've, you've heard of that. It was a whip uh, with, with ceramics and bone on the end. So when they, they whipped him 39 times because 40 was considered the death penalty, they gave him 39. We would grab his flesh and, and tear it off. You know, we could go through the rest of it, but he's beat up, he's torn down. They give him his cross to carry to a place called the Skull, right outside the city. This was a cross that was already used before, right? They didn't have a new one for every criminal. So this one, it was probably just the cross piece that he would carry. The vertical piece was probably already up there on the hill. They just kept it there. So they give him this cross piece. He can't get it, right? He tries. Uh, Simon, this man passing, gets pulled in to carry it for him. He gets up there. Again, this is all normal. This is how the Romans crucified it. They killed people. They get up there. They take this piece. They connect it to the, the cross piece. They lay him down. They nail him to the cross. Again, the Romans doing this, this is normal. They're going through the motions of what they do. All right, give me the, the nail. I mean, it's brutal, but this is what they did. And then there was a hole in the ground that was already there. They had reused it over and over. They take the cross. They tip it up. They drop it in the hole. And there, Jesus dies. Everything was normal until... About noon. Read these verses with me. Matthew 27. We're going to see this. Now from the sixth hour, which is 12 o'clock. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion, that was a Roman, and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. 
It was normal up until the point where he was dying, right? When he was on that cross, darkness, unnatural darkness came over for three hours. We don't know what, you know, was it a, an eclipse? We don't know. Was it, but it was not a normal darkness. That alone was saying, this is different. Something is happening. When he died, the earth shook. The temple torn. This is also significant. This is the Jerusalem temple, the temple of the Jews, um, right, that Solomon had built, and then that one was torn down, and another one was built. But in this temple, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. The high priest could go into this area once a year. That's it. And by the way, when he went into that spot, they would tie a, a rope around his ankle so that if in there he was too sinful to be in God's presence and he fell over dead, they could pull his body out. Without going, so this is, I mean, this is a significant place, the Holy of Holies. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was held, and they would go in there one time a year to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. That area was separated with a veil, right? This veil was about 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, six inches thick. You, you can read in, in scripture where it talks about how it was made. This thing's not going to tear, right? I mean, you get anybody, you're not tearing this thing. It tore from top to bottom, 60 feet all the way, tore opening that up, communicating, one, access to God is now available to anybody through Christ. You don't need a high priest anymore, right? You, you don't need somebody else, a mediator. Jesus is it alone. But just that happening is, this is different, right? That was significant. God did that work. The earthquake itself, rocks were split. This is weird. People came out of the tombs. Saints, these are believers, people who believed in God, came back to life, probably to die again, probably not in new bodies because Jesus hadn't risen yet, but they came out, you know, right? Ding dong. It's Uncle Lou. We buried him last week. What's he doing here? Uh, right? So all these things happened. And, and again, they went through the city. Word spread. This was not done in secret. This was God stamping, Jesus is my son. This is true. You can believe it. And again, this happened. And this was all written down when all these people in Jerusalem were still alive. They could check it. So that's your second point there. The events around Jesus' death are a testimony to his identity. And what did the centurion say? Right? This is a Roman. This is not a Jew. He sees all this happening and he goes, oh, no. Surely that was the son of God. That, that was his testimony when he saw this happen. Now, real quick, how do we know this stuff to be true? Right? I wasn't there. I mean, I can, I'm telling you, that, but, but I wasn't there. Our purpose today, really, we're talking about we have enough evidence to believe. God has given us everything we need to believe. And so I want to talk about that just real quick. How can we trust this to be true? It begins with Romans 1. I'm going to read just a, a section of Romans 1. Because I, I told you that the title of this sermon is No Excuses. Well, in Romans 1, I'm going to read just verses 18 to 23. Paul writes this. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. John, or Paul, there is saying, anybody, everybody who's ever existed can look at creation and go, there's something going on here. 
You can look at the stars. You can look at everything that exists, how it all works together, and go, there is a God. Now, creation isn't going to lead you to Jesus, but it's going to lead you to say, there is a God. He is divine. He is all-powerful. There is something more there. And the wise person will, will see that and go, I want to know more. And there are stories throughout history of people arriving there and going, I want to know more. And God shows them more. God brings them there to that truth. But we can know based on creation, right, that there is a God. Now, let's point to Jesus. How do we know that's true? Well, these first two testimonies, we get them from Scripture. So can, can we believe Scripture? That's what it comes down to. If we're totally honest, if this, is, if this book is not true, our faith is false, right? We have nothing to stand on. The Bible is true. It is what it claims to be. Now, real quick, though, what we're reading here is written by John. Uh, who is John? John, you realize before he was one of Jesus' disciples, he was one of John the Baptist's disciples. John was probably the youngest of the apostles. He was following John the Baptist. John was probably there when Jesus was baptized. John probably heard that voice from heaven. Remember when Jesus died on the cross? Where were his disciples? They fled. They fled, they hid, except for one, John. John was there. John had the courage to stand there and watch Jesus die. We know that because in there, you see Jesus look down and see John. And, and, and he says this in, in the Gospels, but he refers to himself as the one Jesus loved. John never refers to himself in the first person. He says, the one whom Jesus loved. And he said, mother, right? Mary was there. He says, mother, your son. Son, your mother. Basically giving John responsibility for his mom. John watched all that. Where were the other disciples? They were hiding somewhere. John was there. So John is attesting to two things. He says, there's, there's three testimonies. The water, I was there, I saw it. <laughs> the blood, I was there, I saw it. This is true. And then we have scripture, right? Do we, do we have what is written down? We know that what we have is what was originally written. That doesn't mean it's true. There's other reasons we believe it's true. But what we have is what was originally written. The, the New Testament was written in Greek. We have over 5,000 ancient manuscripts, some long, some short, right? Over 5,000 ancient manuscripts in Greek. You pull those all together and compare them, and you go, this is one story. If you add in about five other languages in the, in the near area there in the east that the Bible was translated into, you take those. We have tens of thousands more ancient manuscripts. Bring them in, translate them into the same language. They say the same thing. We are confident that what we have is what was originally written. It is miraculous. And it was spread during the time where a lot of these eyewitnesses were still alive. Paul writes in one of his books, he says, Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to 500 people at one time. Go ask them, right? Because he says most of them are still alive. Some have died, but most are still alive. Go ask them. So what we have is what was originally written and nobody in that time could say this is false. It is true. So I encourage you, if you doubt the Bible, research it, look into it. It will prove itself to be true. It's never been proven false in anything. All right, what's the third testimony? The third one is a little different than, than the first two. The third one is the Spirit. Verse 6, this is he, Jesus, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. The Holy Spirit is the truth. The Spirit is truth and declares to us that Jesus is the Son of God, and our Messiah. That Jesus is the Son of God and our Messiah. Now, this isn't just a warm feeling. 
Although there is some of that, uh, to be honest. The Holy Spirit, one of his jobs is he comes and he attests to the truth. He'll speak things to us. If you are a believer, you have Jesus Christ, right, as your Savior. The Holy Spirit has indwelled you. You have the ability, we saw this before in John, to see some truth, right? Some people will claim some things to be true, and, and you'll go, I'm not so sure, right? The Holy Spirit does something in us to help us see those truths. So he does attest inside us. First John, or John 15, 26, he writes, and this is Jesus speaking, referring to the Holy Spirit. He says, but when the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. This third testimony, this third evidence is largely internal. It is the Holy Spirit coming in and saying, this is true. You can believe this, right? Helping you see truth from falsehood. And we already saw in 1 John how the Holy Spirit often does this. How does the Spirit give assurance of salvation? Several things. The Holy Spirit confirms the truth within a believer by removing their fear of punishment. That's one of those big ones, right? A believer does not fear eternal judgment because they know Jesus died and received that judgment for them. And so that fear is gone. That's unique. That's of the Holy Spirit. He removes their fear of punishment, giving them a love for God's children and breaking their bondage to sin. These are three ways the Holy Spirit attests, right? Life change, breaking the bondage to sin. No other religion can truly do that. Only the indwelling Holy Spirit can help break our enslavement to sin. Do we still sin? Well, most of you probably do. Yes, we, we, we still sin, but that's different, stumbling into sin, than habitual life of sin identified with sin. That's not the same. The Holy Spirit breaks that, and the Holy Spirit gives us a love for one another, right? That's also not natural, right? It's not normal for Christians just to love one another, but, but we do, and that's the Holy Spirit attesting. When you have this feeling, I, I kind of love that person. I don't really like them a lot, but, but I kind of love them, and I'm going to actually get involved in their lives. I'm going to be involved with God's people. Again, that is a testimony from the Holy Spirit in us that this is true. 1 John 5, 9. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. In himself. We have enough to know that there is a God. And then when we dig into it, we have enough to know the answer is Jesus. You know, it, it's kind of interesting as you look at our culture today, uh, what is the most predominant belief? Uh, it's, it's secular humanism. Right, right, that's kind of dominating the cultural scene. There is no God, right, atheism, um, there is no God. We were created through evolution, which, if that's true, right, there's no reason for anything. Are there any real atheists, though? I mean, I mean according to Paul in Romans, there's no such thing as a real atheist. Because everybody looks at creation and goes, there's a God. And we saw evidence of it just this week. If you uh, are a football fan, I was watching a football game last night. And as the game began... They were showing both teams, the whole teams, and their coaches, and the refs, praying in the middle of the field. Now, before most games, a few people pray. The cameras never show it, ever, right? They want to shy away. We don't want to show that stuff. They showed them praying. They, they, they zoomed in on uh, the quarterback of one of them, head down, right, praying, getting, and then they, they go to their side. They were showing this. Why? Because on Monday night, if you watched that game, you had the Bills, right, against the Bengals, kind of a big game. The, the player, right, there's, if you missed it, you're going to have to go look it up. But anyway, player hits, right, gets up, not a big hit, and then just falls over. They canceled the rest of the game. 
It was super weird. I was watching like, this is stupid. What are they? Come on. Everybody gets hurt. Play the game. But when they canceled the game, it was like, oh, okay. He just died. <laughs> like, he must, and he didn't die. But at the time, at least I'm thinking, oh, the only week, he just died on the field. And you sh- all the, the people reporting on it. I don't know if you watched this. It was really annoying. The one I was watching. Because they're like, oh, this, and this gal just kept talking. And she didn't know what to say. So she just kept talking and talking and talking. They didn't know what to do. They hadn't planned for it. One of the ESPN anchors was on. He said, I, I don't know what to say. Like, what is this? He's like, I'm going to pray. And he prayed on live TV. He said, I'm going to bow my head. I'm going to close my eyes. The other anchors did it too. What the heck? <laughs> right? In this time of, 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 of we need something, where do people turn? To God. Even if they don't believe in God, they do too. Right? So, so here, that's my point though. We just saw this week evidence there is no real atheist. We know there's a God. And then he's given us enough evidence there's no excuse. The answer is Jesus. Jesus is the only one. What is this testimony? Look at verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The truth declared by God is that eternal life is only found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There are no real atheists. There is no universalism. We are saved by Jesus alone. How do I know? Before Jesus went to the cross, he was praying. He was praying drops of, sweating drops of blood. He knew what he was going to go do, and he asked the Father, he said, if there's any other way, can we please do that? If there's any other way, I know I'm going to the cross. I know it's going to suffer, and we don't even know the burdens he took when he took the sins of the world on his shoulder, and he asked the Father, is there any other way? The Father said, no, there is no other way. If God told his son there's no other way, who, who are we to say, oh, no, there's another way. God will forgive the ignorant. Wait, no, there's only one way. And here John makes it very clear. Whoever has the son has life. We have that confidence. If you have Jesus Christ, you have life. Done. Stamp of approval by God. Anyone who does not have the son does not have life. There are no second chances. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, just as people who are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. John is urgent in his writing. He wants to give believers confidence, right? Because when we aren't confident in what we believe, right, we're wishy-washy, these false teachers come along, go, oh, that sounds good, I'll go that way. He wants us to be confident and dig in and get in there, right? He is writing to these Christians saying, believe firmly and move forward, right? This uh, Two weeks ago, the New Year's sermon that we looked at from, from Hebrews, or, sorry, but where, where Paul is writing, he said, some of you should be teachers by now, but you need to grow up. You need to move forward. Here, this is where it starts, this foundation. Believe in Jesus and then move forward. Take your next steps. God wants to do great things, but it's only found in Jesus Christ. By the way, these evidences continue. Obviously, the, the Holy Spirit, he's in us. He, he, he works in us, but he also is stirring others who will respond. But what about the other two, the water and the blood? When someone is saved, what's the first thing they're supposed to do? Get baptized. So every time we dunk somebody over, hey, where'd the tank go? <laughs> every time we dump somebody in the tank that's normally right there, it's probably just outside. <laughs> we are attesting that this is true, right? It is evidence. Jesus was baptized. We baptized, mimicking Jesus' death, buried, and resurrection. 
And what's the other one? The blood. Today, we're going to take communion. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are, it's a testimony. We, are te we believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. These are continuing today. I think that's kind of cool how God worked that out. God has a plan. And what is this eternal life he's talking about in verse 11 and 12? Eternal life. A restored relationship of love with the one and only God who created us to be in fellowship with him. That's the truth. The truth is Jesus. The result is eternal life. A renewed relationship with him starting now, lasting to eternity. You know, we, we've said we're, we're going to be trying to give more next steps, right? Paul said at the beginning here, not Paul, not, not Paul. Um, God brought us here for a reason. And so the question is, what are your next steps? What is the Holy Spirit stirring in you right now? Maybe it's, I believe this for the first time. If so, as we move to, to communion and music, come talk to me in the back. Maybe it's time to give your life to Jesus. But if you've already done that, what is your next step? Maybe it's to, to actually believe in confidence that this is true. Or if this is true, there are no second chances and Jesus is the only way. Is there somebody that needs to hear that? Maybe you've been well, I don't want to be judgmental. I want to be tolerant and nice and not tell them the truth. Well, without somebody hearing the truth, they won't know the truth. Maybe your next step is, and maybe the Holy Spirit's giving you a name right now. Ugh, I need to share with this. With grace and love, not like this, right? With grace and love, but maybe your next step is, there's somebody this week, you need to pray about it and seek an opportunity just to share this truth with. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you. God, I thank you that there are no excuses. Um, God, we can try to not believe. We can, we can seek out arguments against the truth because in reality we want to do what we want to do. But God, I thank you that you've made it clear. We look at creation, we know you exist. Um, God, you've given us scripture and the Holy Spirit and these testimonies. We believe, Jesus, you are the Son of God. We believe you died on the cross. We believe you rose from the dead. And we believe we have life in you. We just thank you. God, thank you that you have chosen to freely give us this life. We don't have to earn it. Uh, there's nothing we have to do, but God, that you save us by your love and your grace alone. But God, I do ask that then you would move us to our next steps. You would grow us, that we would grow in this life. We would grow in joy, in peace. We would grow in sacrifice, in service to others. And God, I ask that in 2023, we would see many saved, not just in this church, but in all the churches around we would see many saved. We would see marriages healed because you're working. We would see kids surrendering to you because you are working. We serve you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we do this, these next couple songs, uh, we're opening up these tables for the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper is for believers only. Scripture's clear about that. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus as Lord, don't take it. If you have sin in your life that you're just doing and you're unconfessed, unrepentant, do not take the Lord's Supper until you deal with that sin. If you have a relationship with a fellow believer that's broken and there's something you know you need to do about it, don't take the Lord's Supper until you deal with that relationship or at least make a commitment to make that call on your way out. Otherwise then, pray. Ask God to examine your heart. And when your heart is right, get up. We do this on purpose. It's going to be crowded, right? We have here, there, and in the back, the gluten-free back there. It's on purpose, so our worship is, is active. And so as you are moved, um, get up, take the Lord's Supper. Again, I'm going to be in the back. If you need to give your life to Christ for the first time, or you just need prayer on anything, please come talk to me.